Hello! Hi, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to the Lunarverse. I'm Dr. Charles Liu, your host, but please call me Chuck. It is my great pleasure to introduce to you our co-host, as always, Alan Liu. Hey, Alan, how's it going? Hi, it's going pretty well. Oh, really glad to see you. And our special guest for today, whom we will talk about at great length about all kinds of geeky fun, <laughs> computer scientist Meister, weather Meister, entrepreneur Meister, Andy Green. Hey, Andy, how's it going? Hey, Chuck, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, really glad to have you. And we can't wait to get into all that stuff about you, what you do, especially when it comes to weather and atmospheric science and just computer geeking out. But first... <laughs> We will go to today's joyfully cosmic cool thing. And it has to do with weather on a different planet. In fact, on Jupiter. The James Webb Space Telescope in the summer of 2022 released an amazing space-based image in the infrared of Jupiter and its ring system and a couple of moons hiding out and the amazing atmospheric conditions on the surface. We have haze, we have bright white great red spot uh, it's white because it's reflecting the light coming from the sun in toward us and you have clouds and features like you would never see on earth because of the incredible cosmic size and energy that's welling up from jupiter and auroras that are shining in the north and the southern pole area larger than planet earth itself it's a really incredibly cool picture check it out but maybe the coolest thing about this image is that it was processed and shared with us all by a citizen scientist, not someone who does this for a living, but someone who does it just because they loved it. Indeed, the person's name is Judy Schmidt. She lives in California, and she's been processing images from space telescopes for 10 years, just as a hobby, just for fun. It's just really amazing how you can produce something so amazing, something so professional, something so transformational just because you like to do it, not because it's some obligation or some career track that you're doing. Andy, I know that this is something that really can resonate with you because you have done basically that in your life, right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, honestly, I remember seeing uh, the first pictures of Jupiter way back when uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos was on the air back in the 70s. And I remember yeah. what the images look like now. And boy, I mean, seeing, the, seeing what we can get out of James Webb is just absolutely kind of inspiring and, you know, it's one of the reasons why it makes you kind of happy and, and excited to be in the space business. Completely. And you, too, have built a career, uh, an amazing life, business, work, out of what is essentially a hobby, not necessarily what you trained for academically, right? Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, I, I got into computers when I was young, around nine years old, and I've just kind of stuck with it ever since. It's uh, definitely been a, a life's passion to kind of play around with these toys, for sure. Super cool. Okay, so tell us a little bit about my radar and that amazing atmospheric science that you're doing for us on a day-to-day -day basis for all of us who are users or those of us who are just interested in that kind of scientific application. And then we'll get to a question. Yeah. So my radar is a mobile app that's um, basically really good at showing you the weather, uh, as well as a few other things, earthquakes, uh, tornadoes, um, hurricanes, that sort of thing. But um, mm -hmm. we, we've kind of focused on being an app, a mobile app that shows the weather over the last several years. But we kind of started trying to tackle some of the science challenges behind providing that weather information. And so yeah. we kind of started branching out into the satellite business. And I guess we can kind of get into some of that here in a little bit. Fantastic. Yes, we absolutely will. Okay, first, 
Alan, do we have a question for Andy? Yeah. So the first question that we are asking, um, we got a couple of questions today. This one comes from Anthony, who's asking, how much impact and change do you actually see from global warming in the near future? Ooh, a weather yeah. guy asking a weather person about global warming. Can't imagine a better person to answer that question, Andy. Yeah, Anthony, that's actually a very good question. And unfortunately, I think we're likely to see quite a bit of uh, impact from it. Um, we're already kind of seeing that today in the wildfires that have popped up out in the Midwest and the, and the Western states, um, even around the rest of the world, flooding in India and in Germany and Europe from last year. Um, we're, we're still in a bit of a bind and we're, we're definitely behind in trying to tackle some of the problems that are causing climate change. So that's, that's one of our missions to try to help you know, kind of educate the public and make sure that people are aware of some of the things and the steps that we can take to help mitigate the effects. But we're unfortunately in for a bit of a bumpy ride. Aye, aye, aye. And, and this is not from like news reports. You are the data. I mean, you have actually watched this happen for real, not not with any kind of filters, not with anybody telling you what's going on. Yeah, that's true. While um, weather alone is not necessarily an immediate indicator of, of climate change, uh, mm -hmm. I can say that, you know, part of my job is to sit there and stare at weather screens all day long. And I've been sort of doing that for the last 10 years. And it's, you know, it's hard to escape the reality that storms have becoming been becoming more and more severe and the impacts yeah. from the storms have been more devastating to people. So, I mean, I've, I've seen it playing out in the last several years and um, it, it looks like we're going to continue that trend unless we can make some really big changes. Wow. Okay. Well, thanks, Anthony, for that question. Uh, we have another student question coming up later, I think. But right now, let's yeah. dive right into that technology, the space stuff that you're referring to. How many users does my radar have? Uh, so my radar's got about 13 million active monthly users. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Pretty good. And this is this is all off your phone, right? I mean, you don't have to get a computer or anything like that. You just do that's that. correct. We do have an app that runs on Windows, but it's mostly on your on your mobile device. That's where we're most mm -hmm. useful when you want to check weather on the go, that sort of thing. Okay. And, and are you are you a specialist in, in severe weather or like ordinary weather, just like whether it's going to get wet or not, or like where it's actually a tornado coming? That sort of yeah. Thing? So, well, me personally, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a computer nerd and not so much the weather expert, but the app itself is very good at keeping people apprised of um, uh, current weather conditions, but also um, emerging weather events and severity. So we mm -hmm. put a lot of good artificial intelligence to use to kind of analyze the weather and do the proactive work to notify you ahead of time of what's coming. So we're really good at telling you when the rain is going to start. That's one of our best features, I think. But I think also just from uh, a standpoint of situational awareness, we're really good at being able to show where severe weather might be popping up, what kind of weather warnings are going to be issued, um, hurricane tracking, that sort of thing. Wow. Very handy if you're out on the go. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I had heard that uh, I've, I've known about Tornado Alley in the United States for quite some time now. But uh, what have I have I heard correctly? There's now a second Tornado Alley. Yeah, it seems to be shifting a little bit. So just in general, Tornado Alley is this region in the Midwest of the United States. We're, we're actually a little bit unique here in, in this country in the way our geography is set up. Mm. We can kind of experience weather events that are not necessarily that common in other parts of the world. Mm. Um, we definitely see the most tornadoes in the world. And it's really, a, 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 like I said, a result of the geography here. We have the mountains in the middle, middle uh, western state part of the states that kind of uh, separates the 
warm, moist air that comes in from the Gulf and the cold air that comes in from the West. And what happens is when that air during the right time of the year, when it comes over those mountains and it meets the cold air meets up with the warm air that comes up from the Gulf, it's basically just tornado food. It's fuel oh. for tornadoes. <laughs> and uh, so there's this region of the Midwest out there that's basically really prone to tornadoes, especially around springtime. There's some evidence that the region is kind of shifting to the southeast a little bit. Um, oh, there huh. isn't really any confirmed links just yet that it's related to cl- uh, climate change. But, um, yeah, it's um, as the climate continues to evolve, we will be surprised by uh, these changes in the events and, and, and how the system, the global weather system plays out. Wow. Tell us about the science the technology, I guess you should say. Tell us about the technology surrounding the satellite work that you're doing, the ways that you're going to try to make weather prediction or weather sensing more fancy than we have now, more stronger than we have now, better than we have yeah. now. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but we um, started as a just a regular app, you know, a software company that made an app that was kind of useful to people. But we realized that uh, we could kind of put our heads together and employ some smarts and start tackling some of the science challenges behind gathering weather information and then assembling it and putting it to useful uh, visualizations for users. Um, yeah. We started doing that several years ago, and that's kind of how we've grown out the functionality of our app and what we can do with it. But what was really a big eye opener for us was um, a couple years back, we realized that if we had put our own sensors into space, we could gather additional information that would help us to improve forecasts and um, weather predictions even more. And so we've started on that journey and we've actually had a lot of fun with it. So your phone weather app has its own satellite technology backing it right now. Uh, not yet. It will. So um, <laughs> oh, okay. we did launch, we launched three prototype engineering satellites um, earlier in the year on a rocket lab launch out of New Zealand. Oh, that was a lot of awesome. Fun. So right now we actually have three satellites orbiting the earth, uh, taking mm-hmm. images and sending back some uh, early uh, hardware validation tests, things like that. Okay. But you can actually load up the app and um, track the objects in orbit above you. There's a little layer you can turn on where you can see the satellites above your head and you can kind of follow them and watch when they're overhead. That's really Did cool. You, that's amazing. Did you like borrow NASA's facilities or, or you know, European Space Agency down in Guyana? I mean, how did you do this? No. So it's actually um, the industry is actually opening up. I mean, obviously, in the early years, it was a very um, small club to be able to afford and have the science and the capability to put something into orbit. Yeah. But um, technology, thanks to you know innovators like Rocket Lab and SpaceX, it's a little bit mm-hmm. easier to put things into orbit so that companies like ours can kind of innovate and, and play around and do crazy stuff and send things into orbit. So we um, built these engineering prototypes last year. Uh, there's definitely still a bit of regulatory challenges that you have to go through. And, you know, we want to make sure that we're not going to drop satellites on somebody's house. Yeah, um, But once you go through that work, um, you basically put those satellites onto a rocket. So we used Rocket Lab last, uh, earlier in the year and oh. uh, put them into orbit. And you get to watch them go. And it was pretty amazing. That's, That's amazing. Great. Alan, I, I think you've told me about Rocket Lab in the past. Um, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know presumably Andy knows a bunch of this too, given that he's worked with them. But yeah, they um, worked. There is sort of US, New Zealand combined thing going on because of New some... Zealand. Oh, so they launched yeah. in, from the Pacific. Yeah. So they, they launched some rockets down there from, uh, I think, Wahia Peninsula, something like that. And, and yeah. they're launching some in, in out of uh, Wallops Island in Virginia um, sometime oh. soon also. And they, they're like been a good player in that they've been trying to catch their rockets with helicopters as they fall back to earth. They haven't got oh. one yet as of uh, 
this uh, this recording, but uh, hopefully they get one soon. And I think that's they're sending a mission to Venus sometime next year too. Yeah. So yeah, there's some cool stuff going on. Hooray! Hooray for all these different rocket companies. I think that's terrific. And yeah, and it a must bunch feel of new so rocket companies. Yeah. yeah. And it must feel really cool, Andy, to have like your own satellites up in space. I mean, that's uh, absolutely. Cool. It definitely allowed me to punch a notch on my nerd card for sure. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. It's it's a lot of fun. It's very cool. Wow. Now tell us about that nerd card. I, I've been holding off and holding off, but you are a legend when it comes to <laughs> old style, old school, you know, best in breed, olden days type technology. And, and, and you like, you weren't just playing around like, like I was like, I, I was happy if I could write one line of code that would actually properly interpret without an error, you were doing <laughs> real like usage out of these computers that today we we barely remember from you know the ancient history, I, I'm so impressed. Yeah. You got to tell us about yeah. it. Just just tell us all about it. Yeah. So honestly, it was a long time ago. Um, I got into computers actually when I was nine, so it was probably the late '70s. Um, I just had this weird fascination with pushing buttons, and so <laughs> Radio Shack had come out with their first computer. It was called the TRS-80, and they used yes. to display it in the window and. I tell you, I used to go to that store every day for like a year and just sit there and play on the computer. Oh, they but, just uh, let that you was play. it. Uh, yeah, they were play. very good. They were very good about it. Um, I'm wow. sure I caused them quite a bit of annoyance after a while. But I mean, it was they they knew I was just a kid and they really let me have fun with it. And I can't, you know, if I ever if I could ever find those people that that worked at that store, I'd be very happy to thank them because uh, it gave me an opportunity to kind of play with this toy and learn it on my own. And that was the thing. It, the, the, it went from this fascination of pressing buttons to just learning how to code. Like I was literally, like you said, punching in code from a book and watching it run. And that was the biggest rush as a kid at that age to be able to create something on a computer, you know, typing in a, a lines of instructions and having the computer do something that you told it to do. And that just set me on a course uh, for, you know, where I'm at today. And it was just, I feel really lucky that I got a chance to play with that at such an early age and, and get connected with it so early. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Dude, I don't imagine you, like, own one. Uh, <laughs> you I still do. have one? I do. What? Well, you do? Well, so I, yes, for, I am very nostalgic, absolutely. And uh, <laughs> there, there are still quite a few of those computers. You can find them on eBay if you go shopping around for them. Wow. But I have here at the office, I don't know if you can see this or not. I don't know if you want me to turn the camera around. We could try that. Go for it. Give it a try. Let's see. Oh, my gosh. Uh, we're going to have to describe this. There. Oh, yeah. there it is. Yeah, we're going to have to describe this to the monitor there. You got I the keyboard. Yeah. Sort of so that is a TRS-80 Model 3. And wow. it's sitting on a vintage computer desk. So I figured antique computers and antique desks. <laughs> yeah, it's and uh, so, even yeah. on top of it is an old acoustic modem. <laughs> but that is that is one of the computers I used to work on as a kid. That's amazing. So for those of you who are uh, just listening to this podcast and not watching it, it basically looks like a big toaster oven with a keyboard stuck on it. It's amazing. <laughs> it's got a screen but, too, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, on the, on the right side, did I see... A couple of floppy drives. You did, you did, absolutely. <laughs> and what's scarier is that I was around when those became a big thing. You know, when I first started playing with computers, you had to put in a cassette tape. That's and, right. Uh, it was very slow and tedious and cumbersome. Wow. But um, I remember the first time uh, computers had kind of gotten modernized and they had floppy drives in them. And uh, I remember the first time putting a floppy drive, a uh, floppy disk, get into a computer and just feeling this rush. You know, wow. like you're going to be doing this a lot more in your lifetime. <laughs> and sure, <laughs> and enough, I mean, I barely remember true. floppy disks myself. So, <laughs> oh man, I was um, a CD-ROM era there. <laughs> yeah, much better at that point. But even so, yeah, floppies remarkable. And 
I got to tell you, if you think about old movies like, you know, Stanley Kubrick, 2001, A Space Odyssey, you know, that came out in the 60s and stuff. That's what computers looked like to them. And that's exactly the kind of terminal that you would expect. Oh, that's why you're going to type in term, you know, computer and things like that. And that's what Hal's input output screens look like. And then, you know, a decade or more later, that's exactly what happened. And, and today, what we visualize, uh, what computers might look like today, maybe that's what they'll look like years from now. It's just a, a remarkable sort of progression of, of just creative geekdom. <laughs> yeah. Ironically so, enough, they used one of those, a, a dressed up version of those in uh, Star Wars Andor. Wow. Uh, yeah. It, there's one scene in like the first episode, I think, where you can see it. And it's got some extra lights on it. But it's kind of funny because it's come full circle watching a movie yeah. about futuristic, you know, technology. And there they are <laughs> using something from the 70s. So, yeah. Wow. Funny. That is wow. kind of so, funny. We have to give a, a moment of props for the TRS-80. May Radio Shack <laughs> always rest in knowledge that they changed the world. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so what do you think computers will look like years from now, Andy? I mean, you're the one who's putting onboard artificial intelligence onto your uh, systems here. Yeah, what's going to so be the future? I'll be honest with you. It's going to be absolutely crazy. Because if you look at just the last several years and how much things have changed, I yeah. mean... You know, they say that there's a big um, upset, a revolution in how people consume um, their media on a computer every 10 or 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, we've gone from big screens. Then we made this big jump to mobile phones where everybody's consuming their data now. Yeah. And I think the industry is kind of really believing that the next um, form of uh, consumption would be uh, augmented reality glasses. I know Apple's got an announcement coming up Ooh. here pretty soon, but uh, basically, cool. you know, you put them on and um, they, they're, it augments reality. It takes, you're allowed to see, you know, what's outside the glasses, but it overlays some form of digital data on top of it. And I, you know, they've tried, there have been some companies that have tried it and failed. And I think maybe it was a little bit too ahead of its time, but um, mm -hmm. I think that's probably going to be the next big thing. And it'll be interesting to see how well society deals with it, you know? Wow, having yeah. glasses on. It didn't go too well last time it happened. Um, but, uh, you know, I think people have gotten much more accustomed to the technology these days. So they're probably, mm. I think it'll probably catch on, especially if, you know, somebody pulls it off and does it the right way. Oh, yeah, it's okay. not going to be Google Glass all over again. Oh, right. no. Right. <laughs> Bringing up bad memories. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, but but that still means that, like, I, who ordinarily wear glasses, we hopefully can sort of add stuff to it so that, Anytime I go to a conference or something, I will never have to worry about forgetting the name of somebody. I right. believe me, I am waiting for that invention because I need it really bad. <laughs> I mean, you need a few name tags, but they're boring. Oh, yeah. No, I, name tags are great. But you know what? I, I don't know. I think science has yet to invent a name tag that won't flip over 180 degrees so you can't see the person's <laughs> name. And instead, you Honestly, see their drink tags. I think it'd be much better for me to be able to pretend that I didn't forget somebody's name. So, <laughs> Joe, right. Got it. From last year. Understood. Right. Awesome. All right. So do you think we'll be able to play games on those glassy computers? Uh, absolutely. Um, we've already seen some examples of that. Uh, Pokemon Go was a really good example of something oh, yeah. that kind of oh, caught right. on virally. And that was, um, you know, that was a little bit, that involved having a phone that you would hold up and, and, and mm -hmm. take images of where you'd see virtual objects on it. So that's kind of was an early introduction to the concept, but absolutely, um, you'll be able to play games with it, uh, with, with the glasses. And I think those are going to be some of the next up and coming applications that people are no doubt working on right now. Yeah, I think 100%. that's great. 
Now, did you play games on the old TRS-80? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, that was, um, that was, if anything, an indication of how good your imagination had to be. Because uh, <laughs> I used to love playing this game called Invasion Force. And, you know, being a Star Trek nerd kid, you know, um, watching Captain Kirk uh, commanding the Enterprise, that was really cool. And I think everybody kind of, every kid kind of daydreamed about that. And, you know, this game back then was all text-based. You know, you had like 40 characters wide screen and uh, it would draw like a bunch of pluses and symbols and you could go around blowing up Klingon ships and navigating through space and it was it was enough to really spur your imagination to, to, to you know, make you feel like you were in command of the Enterprise so it was very cool. amazing so the Klingon yeah. ships were plus signs yes uh, they were like K's I think the letter K's. K oh, yeah. okay so the Enterprise would be like E uh, I think so. I don't, honestly, I don't remember. It was Amazing. that long ago, and my memory is not that great. But uh, wow. yeah, times have changed considerably. I mean, some of the games that I play now, it's yeah. sometimes kind of hard to distinguish it from reality. So Ooh. I'm, uh, I'm happy play, about that. Like virtual reality games and stuff like that? I, I did for the longest time, yeah. The one VR game that I played in particular was um, Elite Dangerous. Oh, and it was oh. really cool because um, the object of that game is to fly a spaceship around, basically. You know, that's that's yeah. selling it short. But when you put those goggles on and you look around and you see the planets around you and you see the other ships flying by you, I have to admit, even in my all of my years in playing in the computer industry, that was a huge monumental moment for me to experience that and see how different it was. It was kind of like an indication of how, you know, what's to come. Because even yeah. back then, you know, this was several years ago and the glasses weren't as good as they are now. And they're already getting, you know, leaps and bounds uh, better, you know, in the next few versions of them. So, yeah, it... Um, it's, it's very neat when you get the right technology and, and it starts to break that barrier between reality and, and, and game the game world. Wonderful. Yeah. I do. I want to talk more about games, especially because Alan is a serious gamer and understands video games much better than I do, at least the modern right versions. My yeah. version of video games is Space Invaders and Asteroids. <laughs> uh, they're also good. Those are also but, good. Yeah, they are. Okay, they became popular get, for a reason. That's true. They did. Um, last question. Talk us through how you got your satellites launched. What did that take? I think that's fantastic. If I if I had the wherewithal, I would launch my satellite in a heartbeat, right? Now I, I know about I know about CubeSats, which are you're creating little payloads, and there are students all over the world that can make little tiny payloads. They all pile on to a single spacecraft and they all get launched together. But but you've done that next step. You have your own satellite. How did how did that happen? What did it take? Well, I, I have to, you know, obviously confess here, it wasn't me alone. So we're, there's about 40 people here at the company, but uh, we have a really good team of really <clears throat> incredibly smart guys, smart engineers and, and talented people. And so it was really with their help that I was able to do it. I was kind of, you know, maybe the driving crazy force to say, let's give it a try. But these guys actually did all the work to make it happen. In fact, I've ac actually got one of the satellites here at some point. And I can try to show you. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll yeah, take go a get quick look. Yeah, and yeah, I'll yeah. try to. See if you can tell you a little it. bit of a story along the way. But okay. the short version is um, we were talking earlier about some of these rocket companies and uh, how there are a lot more of them coming on the market and bringing the prices down and allowing companies yeah. like ours to innovate. That's um, definitely made it easier. Uh, really, anybody, you know, it, 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 
being able to put something into orbit used to take hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you know, yeah. just several years ago. And now it can be brought down for under $100,000. Um, wow. You know, in some cases, it, you can build a satellite. There are people who have built satellites for under 1000 and then launched them for 25000 And, Whoa. you know, that's just an idea. It's still, you know, it's, it's not like you're going to shell it out your weekend cash fund for it. But yeah. it's, it's still something it's that's like attainable car, if you, know. you can kind of gather your resources a little bit. Yeah. And um, that's going to open up the the sluice for um, uh, a lot of innovation in the future. People even smarter than, you know, the people that are working here are going to be able to put together some really cool technology and put it into orbit and do some amazing things with it. Wow. Uh, let's see if All I right. can show you. So, yeah. These so are... those of you who are on the audio, uh, Andy is just opening up a, a briefcase, something not much bigger than a bread box. And he's pulling out, oh, there it is. He's pulled out a thing about the size of a Rubik's cube. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's got a wire sticking out of it. Oh, two wires, obviously yeah. antennae of some kind. All right, uh-huh. tell us about this amazing thing. So this is an engineering prototype. It's a, a copy of one of the ones that's in orbit. And this oh, awesome. actual model may wind up going into orbit next year. Um, it's very small. So this is what we call a pocket cube. Um, normally, CubeSats, uh, they're in the form of a, a U, which is uh, 10 centimeters squared. This one is one quarter of the size. Uh, okay. One eighth of the size, sorry, and it's at five centimeters uh, squared, uh, cubed. And these little black things here are solar panels. And you were right; these are antenna. Uh. And so, basically, this device is um, all this really is for us is just an engineering prototype. It's got some hardware on it that we'll put up into orbit, and we'll just make sure that it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure that we don't have any problems with it. Observe how it behaves. Get some telemetry back from it, and then we'll use that data when we go to build our commercial satellites later on. So wow. it, it, it is pretty neat, but the commercial satellites that will launch will be um, full 1U CubeSats, okay. and they will have a suite of different sensors on them. There'll be a, a hyperspectral imager on it, a thermal imager, so you can look at temperature changes, and a visible camera on it. Wow. And uh, it'll have some crazy artificial intelligence to kind of uh, observe the planet and kind of keep a watchful eye on it 24-7, and then alert us when, we, when it sees something out of the ordinary, like... Um, wildfire hot spots if there's uh if it flies over an area that's you know poorly uh moisture uh, vegetation that has poor moisture content or just an area in general that's likely you know at a high risk of ignition during a wildfire we can get an alert from that on the ground and then potentially uh, notify authorities and uh, fire management agencies to kind of go in there and proactively deal with the area and prevent it from becoming an issue later on and that's just one one small part of it um, that's amazing. That, and well, to, to think that something only a few inches on a side can do all of that. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, are, yeah. are there thrusters? I mean, does it follow an orbit? How long yeah. will it stay in orbit? So it'll stay in orbit for about five or six years. Um, it's at wow. about it's at an altitude of about 525,000 kilometers. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't that's have thrusters, uh, but mm. it does have some simple devices on it that help stabilize it. So there's something on it called a magnetorker, which basically helps follow the Earth's magnetic field, and it yeah. uses that to stabilize it. So there's obviously there's no air friction in orbit. Um, having just a, these magnets on board helps keep it pointed at the Earth and helps keep it stable. Uh, that was pretty... Uh, that was something I learned early on and realized, wow, that's pretty easy, pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, we've also got some other things on there that help control the attitude and allow us to point it, but no, wow. no thrusters on it. So wait, um, do you mean 525,000 kilometers or 525,000 meters? Uh, 525 kilometers. Okay, cool. Okay. <laughs> I always space get that wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, my bad. I always get that messed oh. up. Um, okay. It's actually a little bit lower than the space station. Yeah. So. Okay. 
Cool. Yeah. Right. Well, so at that altitude, there's um, not much oxygen, so it'll probably be in orbit again for around five or six years or so, and then eventually it'll, its orbit will decay and it'll fall back to Earth. All right. It'll burn up in the atmosphere, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. If it doesn't, fact, I want it to land in my backyard. <laughs> I, I want it. It's cute. Aim it with the magnetorker. <laughs> you, might <have> wait, <laughs> you might have to wait in line for that. <laughs> Yeah, you, were asking, you were asking about some of the things you have to do in order to launch, but that's one of the things you have to provide. Um, yeah. We're getting much smarter about making sure that we take care of um, the orbit around the Earth and try yeah, to mitigate the effects problems. of orbital debris. So yeah. whenever you uh, launch a satellite, you have to provide a deorbit plan, which basically tells, you know, it, it spells out how long it's going to be in orbit and when it will break up. So that's that's kind of nice to know that we're at least paying attention to that. That's true. That's great. And, and is one of the things that is required like a cute nickname? Because that is one actually photogenic little spacecraft. I mean, mm. I would name it Magnetorker just because I think that's a great name. But, but you should well, come up with something cool. So our commercial constellation is going to be called Horus. Uh, oh. Horus with an I instead of a U. And the idea is a little bit of Egyptian mythology there. Horus was nice. able to kind of see the future. Right. Um the Horus satellite will actually be able to look at the Earth and kind of help us predict the future and kind of avoid uh, you know, wildfire outbreaks. Uh, tropical cyclones will get a little bit better at being able to predict them and track them and, and a number of other things. So that's kind of what that. But what I can say this one, the ones that are in orbit, our engineer calls them his babies. <laughs> when we um, Every satellite, when it's in orbit, it sends out a beacon. It's basically a brief little radio signal to tell you, hey, I'm here and alive. And the very first time um, we heard from our satellites after they were launched, our engineer screamed, "Oh, I I hear my babies!" Oh, <laughs> that is so sweet. That's nice. oh, it's wonderful. Uh, on that yeah. happy note, I, I cannot find a I can't think of a better way to end this episode and this conversation than with that happy note. Those are my babies, Andy. I really want to thank you. You have given us so much to think about the space technology, the the science, and and just the joy of being able to play with these things for a living, for a life. I mean, that sounds so cool. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, really. And I appreciate you having me on here so I can sit here and geek out for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> the pleasure is absolutely ours. Alan, as always, thank you so much for what you do. We really, yeah. really appreciate it. All right. Yeah, Andy, if we, <laughs> yeah, uh, Andy, if we want to contact you or if we can find out more about MyRadar or your cool satellite projects, how can we find you? Yeah, so you can go to MyRadar.com. Um, you can find all about the web, uh, find out all about the app and you can download the app right from there and if you want to hear a little bit more about uh, what we're doing and what our plans are for space you can go to myradar.com slash space or i think it's myradar.space <laughs> oh, oh awesome forget the dot com part just go right to dot space exactly that is very very cool andy thank you again what a pleasure this has been thank you thank you alan thank you again what a pleasure this has been thanks and for you all if you like what you see in here please support us on patreon and as always, thank you for being with us. Thank you for being a part of the Luniverse.